Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast and this is how the show starts. I asked my guests who they are, so who are you? My name's Adam Hills. Uh, I'm a stand-up comedian. Uh, I'm a TV host. I write children's books. I am not Will Anderson. Yeah, this is going to blow people's minds, Adam. <laughs> They'll think this is some AI-generated, uh, you know, deep fake that I am putting together to finally put to bed. By the way, I love, as I mean, it's as everybody knows, people get Adam and I confused for each other. It has been a running bane of both of our existence that we are both embraced comedically because what other choice do you have at the end of the day, right? (laughs) (laughs) And the truth of it is um, that, you know, it's mostly joyful and fun, but like the one that I always love the most is the person who's like, well, why is there never any evidence of you two being in the same place? And I am, I'm like, there is, there's heaps. (laughs) We're friends. We've known each other for a very long time. There is, I can show you photos from like Edinburgh, like Mm -hmm. 20 plus years ago of the two of us. Like there is documentary evidence. This is not a conspiracy. (laughs) But hilariously, you mentioned Edinburgh 20 years ago. I think it was 1998 was my first Edinburgh. No, Uh it wasn't. Sorry, it was my first Edinburgh, but there was one I did where there was a poster of me and I was living in Sweden at the time. So there's no Uh way you and I could have known what each other were doing. My poster was me, black T-shirt, blue background, balancing a globe of the world on my finger like a basketball. The same year, your poster was you, black top, blue background, with a th- holding a 3D jigsaw puzzle of the it world. It was a jigsaw, incomplete jigsaw puzzle yeah. of the globe. Like, it was so similar <laughs> that, like, it honestly was like, is this the, like... Aldi version of like, is there some (laughs) sort of what is going on? And like, it's one of those things where you see that there'll be a story about Vladimir Putin and, um, you know, there'll be like, oh, it's his body double or like, you know, Saddam Hussein had a bunch of body doubles. And you do realize how like indistinguishable people find generic looking white guys from each other that you're like, oh, yeah, I reckon you don't have to be spot on to be like a Vladimir (laughs) Putin. You know, impersonator. As long as you've got like ninety-five percent of the gist of Vlad, <laughs> I think it'll convince most people. That's the name of his perfume, by the way, the, <laughs> the gist of Vlad. Um, but there was also that thing. I mean, it didn't help that we were both on the ABC, both True. on a Wednesday night, both hosting exactly. panel shows, and prior to that, you had been on a radio show with a guy called Adam. Yeah, that that really was the one that threw the spanner in the works. I think people don't think about that. But there's something about the power of the name Adam. I would have people come up to me, you know, drunk when I was doing like Comedy Festival Roadshow going, oh, Will, loved you, loved you on radio, mate, loved you. And I'd go, no, 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 I'm Adam. And they'd go, oh, yeah, loved you on radio with Will. And I go, no, I'm not that Adam. And they'd go, what? And it was just too, there were just too many variables all floating. And and my, my, (laughs) I mean, I know you and I have discussed this. I think my favorite one was after I hosted an MTV event um, for Slash, at a theatre in Melbourne. And basically my job was to warm the crowd up and try and get win over all these people who had come to see Slash. They hadn't come to see stand-up comedy. <laughs> uh, and I did. You know, I won them over. I introduced Slash. He had a great gig. And then on the way out, there was just one proper metal dude that was like, hey, great work, Will. 
And it just, <laughs> just undercut everything I thought I'd achieved. But the loveliest, and you don't know this story. So I've been playing, as you know, I've been playing disability rugby league for yes. a few years now. And in 2018, we brought our team out to Australia. So I, I joined Warrington, the Warrington Wolves uh, disability rugby league team. Warrington's halfway between Manchester and Liverpool, the north of England. Lovely, lovely blokes, all with varying disabilities. Um, we brought them out to Australia. And on the flight on the way out, they thought it was really funny just every now and then in the middle of the flight to just go, oh, my God, it's Adam Hills, just to annoy me, just to annoy me, all the way through customs and for the first few days of being in Australia. And then we were on a Manly ferry. We went out to Manly. We were coming back, and this, they, this woman came up to me and went, oh, my God, it's Will Anderson. <laughs> And the rest of the rugby team thought that was the funniest thing they had ever heard because they didn't know who this Will Anderson they would have was. No idea. <laughs> like that is like the a surreal prank to them because their setup to this has been our joke is that everyone knows Adam Hills. I'm embarrassing him by pointing out that it's him. Good material. And then a complete stranger in another country comes up and calls that person a name you've never heard. Like that elevates it. That's a new level to that bit. And of course they then ran with that bit. Mm. So for the rest of the tour when it would go quiet, my rugby yeah. mates would just yell out, oh, my God, it's Will Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. I'm getting but, some good traction. But the end of all this, so this mm. went on for the whole tour, you know, yes. a whole 20 blokes from the, with disabilities from the north of England shouting, oh, my God, it's Will Anderson. There's one guy in that team, Craig Jensen, Jeno, we call him. Now, Jeno has cerebral palsy and it affects the way he speaks as well. He's very hard to understand the way he speaks. In fact, I was in an event and my daughters were there and he kept coming up and tickling them and they were getting a bit freaked out. And I had to say to them, no, 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 Jenna has cerebral palsy. He doesn't speak very well. So he tickles you. That's how he says hello, which then led to one of my daughters the next morning going, so does Jenna have terrible palsy? <laughs> like, you know what? That's what we're going to call it from now on. But... You know, you know, we finished the tour of Australia. We got back to the UK. The next time we trained was probably, I don't know, maybe it was a month later. And he, when I turned up, just went, Adam Wills. <laughs> and this was 2018. We are talking five years ago. Whenever I see him, he will yell out, Adam Wills. And I don't know. If it's a bit or if it, If he, he just thinks that's know. what my name is. Or if he's so clever, he's combined yeah. Adam Hills and Will Anderson and he now calls me Adam Wills. Oh, man, it's beautiful. And I, I, This is what I have done recently is I've started um, – often I'll get this from people because I've realised I don't want to let people down sometimes. You don't have the time hmm. to explain everything. And <laughs> yeah, often yeah. people will come up to me and they go oh, – like they'll lead with, oh, how's Miff, how's Alan? And because I know how Miff and Alan are yeah. independently, I don't feel like I am misleading them in that situation when I say, oh, yeah, they're great, you know, Miff's just moved, blah, 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 like mm -hmm. she's got a book out, you know, all these sort of things. And then we walk away. And maybe they just feel like they had a good experience with you, you know? I didn't lie. I haven't, like, I haven't, under false pretenses, just answered the question I was asked. <laughs> I don't, I mean, I've never had a put down. I've never had a negative. So, I mean, that's nice for you to know. No one's ever said, hey, Will, you know, hate your staff. I, well, I, that is nice for me to know because I always feared that you had got the worst of this arrangement, to be honest, because... <laughs> I feel like you're so loved and lovable and like 
yeah, it's very natural to you, but it's also like, you know, you're known for that. Whereas I guess like if anything, I was known occasionally for like, you know, being a little bit more, you know, transgressive in whatever way that you want to define that, right? And so I wondered that if your good, you know, nicer, cleaner image was getting roughed up by like, you know, my various scandals and you were, that you would get some negative feedback because of that. Although you've got a lot chirpier as the years went on and you went global and then suddenly I was like, okay, well, I feel like if it's going to come back, it'll come back this way. <laughs> if, any, if anything, I've yeah. got an out clause now because if someone comes up to me and says, hey, you tried to hit on my girlfriend back in that bar in Perth in 1999. Yeah. I can just go, oh, no, it's probably uh, Will. You're thinking of Will. Will. <laughs> Maybe Dave Thorne, Charlie Pickering. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there, I, I'll be honest, there have been occasions where I've gone, I'm pretty sure I wasn't in a bar in Perth in 1999. I reckon that was Will. <laughs> I mean, possibly. I mean, I might have been. Who knows? Um, I still he, regret... Yeah. The, the the cabin crew member that you got that gave you a – wasn't it a hand massage? Yeah, so uh, I was flying and uh, I had a migraine headache and the uh, cabin uh, attendant came over and she uh, did – firstly did the pressure point, you know, thing that people mm -hmm. sometimes do for headaches where they just push quite hard in between. So at that stage yeah. it was quite – medical in its nature you know very felt <laughs> yeah, very yeah. clinical like a nurse but then like they got some like nice hand cream and like gave me a hand massage and then the end of this relaxing hand massage they, they whispered in my ear if you were adam hills you would have got extras <laughs> that's a true story that's a real thing that happened to me i also enjoyed one night i went to um to see nick cave with your wife Yep. And uh, under your name for like, – oh, yeah, it was yeah. your ticket. Yeah. You were away and I went uh, with her to go and see this oh, event. Yeah. And she just said, I'll just go up and, you know, this will <laughs> be the time that it comes in handy, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and so I said, you know, one for Adam Hills. And the person looked up at me and went, you're not Adam Hills. <laughs> And my wife said at the end of the night, if you're Adam Hills, you would have got extras. <laughs> uh, so, you, like, uh, you talk about the um, the rugby league team and mm. uh, I, I reckon that's a good place to start for this conversation. I'd love yeah, yeah. to have a chat about, you know, what, what drew you to that team in the first place, what that journey has been about for you, not to use that reality TV term, but it has been a, like a, a good reclaiming of the definition of that it's literally been a journey a journey that people have been able to follow along with as well and see your your love and passion and dedication and enthusiasm for what you got yourself mixed up in grow and you know like anyway i'm not going to tell the story i want you to tell the story so tell me <laughs> how it all started i think it's one of the i mean you know you know being in this position we get offered opportunities to do mad stuff all the time and i don't always take it up and i think I think that's a good tester for me. Like the stuff I do say yes to, I remember years ago, you know, I'm always offered free, we're, we're always offered free tickets to various places. And then half the time I'm like, oh, I couldn't be, I just stay at home. And I remember many years ago I was offered tickets to Wimbledon and I went, oh yeah, oh yeah. Okay, this is the thing I want to do. And that's what happened with rugby league in that someone tweeted me. I just got a tweet out of the blue saying, did you see that the South Sydney Rabbitohs physical disability rugby league team won last weekend? 
I didn't even know there was a physical disability rugby league competition. So I kind of looked into it, went on Facebook and went, oh my God, there's, there's people in Sydney playing disability rugby league. I've never heard of this. And I grew up, I grew up in Sydney. When I was three days old, my dad brought a red and green toy South Sydney rabbit into the hospital. So I've, I've been a South Sydney rabbitos obsessive since literally I was three days old. Um, I played, you know, I would always play touch football at primary school. I got to high school. I played a couple of years, but then it kind of gets to a point where, and I found this recently that it gets to a point when you've got a disability, especially one that you're born with, where you just go, oh, I ne- okay, now I can't keep up. I mean, I wasn't the strongest rugby league player anyway, but I loved it. And so I looked into it and it was one of those moments where I didn't even think twice. I just called up, you know, a little introvert because, you know, as comedians often we're a little bit shy or introvert or whatever. Th- that was gone. It was like, oh, I want to do this. So I called this guy in Sydney, a guy called George Tonner, who invented physical disability rugby league and said, look, what's the deal? You know, I'd love to support. Can I play? And he's, he, he literally had no idea who Adam Hills or Will Anderson were. Are you sure? <laughs> did you ask if he knew who I was? Maybe you did. Maybe he was a big fan of mine. That's a good point. I didn't ask. He yeah. certainly had Don't no idea. Don't just assume that he didn't know. He might have been... <laughs> <laughs> had no idea who I was, didn't know I was disabled because I said, can I play? And he was like, no, you need a disability. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'm missing yeah. a foot. Like, mm-hmm. I'm, I qualify there. I mean, what a horrible person you'd be if you were just ringing around disability <laughs> rugby when you were able-bodied, just uh, like, I'm looking for a level I can dominate. <laughs> like, no, thanks, mate. Listen, we'll get to that because I think that oh. is going on. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> so, but he said, look, you're based in London. I've just been contacted by a team in Warrington that want to set up England's first ever disability rugby league team. Why don't you contact them? So I got back to London. He he had given me a number. I called this guy called Neil, who was in charge of the Warrington Walls Foundation, which is the charitable arm of the club. And it all kind of took off from there. We, we He organised a, a kind of publicity day where a whole bunch of people with disabilities just had a quick 10-minute run against the, the first team, the first grade team. That was the end of 2017. By 2018, we had five teams and we had brought our team out to Australia to play the Rabbitohs. And then, you know, cut to last year when there was a physical disability rugby league world cup took place alongside the men's, women's and wheelchair. Uh, I got to play for Australia. We filmed it all for a documentary. It's on channel 10 on the 20th of September, I think. Um, about also, when this episode comes out. Like, I, we, right. we, we're trying to do the professional thing and time it for around the release. But the, 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 so the first call I made was the guy at the Rabbitohs to go, okay, what's the deal? The second call I made was to a guy who used to direct The Last Leg, um, who now makes sports documentaries in London and, sa- who, and who is a rugby league fan. And I said to him, I think we've got a thing. I think there's a thing here. I think we should make a documentary about this. And those two things spurred each other on because I find – if there's a camera in front of me, I'm more likely to do something ridiculous. Whereas in real life, I might go, yeah, that'd be fun. But if there's someone there filming, I'm like, okay, come on, let's make something with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and What is that, by the way? Like, what do you think that is? Why, why? I understand it and I relate to it in some ways, but where do you think that comes from? Oh, I joke a lot of the time on this podcast, like one of the, a throwaway line. Mm. I will say, like, why bother having a conversation that I can't monetize? Like, <laughs> but <laughs> like, what's the point? You're not going to get my best stuff, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm saving that for when it can earn me a living. But no, but what do what do you think is actually at the heart of the idea that if there's a camera involved, you're more motivated to do it? Because there's an audience. 
Yeah, I think it, okay. I think it's more that I think I thought that's where you were going to go. What's the point of having yeah. a conversation if there's not an audience listening? I think as a comedian, yeah. what's the point of thinking up a joke, like if you can't go out and say it and get a laugh with it? Like I, if I'm not working on a stand-up show, then I don't write material because my brain's like, well, what's the point? What's the yeah. if okay. I've got a show tonight, I'll come up with a joke this afternoon because it's yep. like great, okay. I can do it. So I think that's what it is. I think it was like. I mean, I wanted to document it anyway. I thought it had the the, the yeah. possibilities of a really good story, but I think uh, I probably went further because there was a camera there. It was like, okay, well, let's, you know, what's the point of doing something ridiculous if you're not filming it? <laughs> I, I, I think that's a great and honest thing to say because you could frame it simply about, you know, you know, the, you know your own your noble vision and, you know, charitable intentions, but... To recognise things that motivate you is like a, a very honest thing to do, right? Like put them in place. Sometimes, you know, if you eat shit food, if you have it late at night in your house, like you'd love to just become the sort of person who can't, who refuses. I have the, I just have so much willpower that I will refuse <laughs> yeah. that delicious food late at night when I want it. Or put a barrier in between you and the food, like don't have it in the house so it's too hard to go and do the opposite of that could also be true. You can put in place, you know, some um, – uh, selfish is even the wrong word, but some, like, you know, s structures around something to actually aid your charitable intentions by just saying, I will do more here. I will be more charitable, <laughs> right? <laughs> in return. Like, this is actually – it's a good deal. We're going to get publicity. The story's going to get out more, but also – the main protagonist of this, like the person who needs, because again, it's you're an interesting person here because you're not just somebody who um, pops down to this club and, you know, has a game. You do have in the UK in particular, I mean in Australia obviously, but, you know, you've had huge success in, you know, England and been part of the cultural conversation there. So suddenly it's not just your the fact that you are a well-known person, but you are, you know, you, you've done the, the show, The Last Leg. You've been connected to, you know, disability, like sports. Yeah, yeah. and Like you have legitimacy, you have power both within the community but also within the media. Like this is, I mean, if you didn't do it, who was more qualified than you to do it, you know? It's not like you've gone, there should be a documentary like about me, person who's never made television a documentary, he's just walked into this club. Like it's a, this you are that's your role. And teams, you would know this from playing the game. Your role in the team is to play your role. There's no good your star of the team not being the star in the moments where they, their level of excellence is needed or their individual capacity is needed, right? Well, there's, I mean, there's two things that go along with that. There's, there's that, that you made me think of anyway, is that, that many years ago I was at a, um, I hosted a concert for the Dalai Lama in Perth mm -hmm. and he came into the green room and gave us all, a, you know, an audience. And, you know, it was, like, it was like Tim Rogers and, you know, Susie DeMarchi and like an amazing lineup of people. And he, I remember him saying to us, he said, I'm not a singer or a musician, but I know this, you have a microphone, use it to say something. 
And so I think, you know, when it, come, when it came to make this documentary, my, my brain was like, okay, well, what can we, yeah, I want to show off. I want to capture all this. But what can we say? What's, what's the point of doing this? Exactly, you know, as you say, you've got your microphone. What are we going to put out there? But also, I mean, when, you, when, you're, when you're part of, you're exactly right. When you're part of a team, when, you, when I walk on that pitch, actually, I was going to say, when I walk on that pitch, I'm not the guy off the telly. I'm just another rugby league player. But that's not true. The first game I played against every team, I reckon I was the guy off the telly because I got targeted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like the first game against Damn Leeds. straight you did. Massive, so you should have. Yeah, one of the Look forwards. Mr. Fancy Telly, man. <laughs> Absolutely. First game ever, I got slammed by this guy. Tommy, uh, Tommy Pouncey, you know, we're all friends now. Slammed me out on the wing, jumped on my back and in my ear just whispered, I enjoyed that. and i you know i had a massive wake-up call after that first game i was bruised all over my tackle technique was wrong but every time we played a team for the first time they would target me until they kind of went you know what he can take it fair play and then i kind of felt like i'd proven myself but you're exactly right that's why i loved going to training every Tuesday night, well, now it's now Monday nights, why I loved playing because I wasn't the guy off the telly when I got to training. I was Hillsy. I was just Hillsy. And in fact, some of them would even, there's one of the first aiders, a lovely lady called Helen, says, every now and then I watch you on TV and go, oh my God, that's right, he's Adam Hills. I, I just think he's Hillsy, which is lovely because you, you turn up at training and you're exactly right. It's a team mentality. The team comes first. And you just have to play your part in amongst all that. Not only that, is that when you're playing a game, you've got to put your body on the line. Like, it's full contact. You know, I've, I've fractured an ankle. I've torn a hamstring. I've torn an IT band in my hip. I've held my, ha- my captain's wrist while he popped his dislocated wrist back into place on the field. Like, it's full on. And when you do that, and I mean, you know, there is a philosophy of life that kind of probably, you know, I'm accidentally leading towards. But when you do that, when you when you immerse yourself in the team and the betterment of everybody around you whilst also being at your best, that's probably what life is about. Like I've learned so many lessons from – do you know the biggest lesson I learned from from playing rugby league? <laughs> and this, this I think strikes at the heart of every comedian. I realised I don't have to be a loser because – as a comedian, winning's not funny. There's nothing funny about you telling a story on stage and getting it to the end and then go, and then I won. <laughs> I feel like, oh, why are you telling me that? And I couldn't get my head around that. I, I thought that there was something inbuilt in me that I had to screw everything up. And there was one game where we played against Leeds and I didn't realise there was 30, 30 seconds to go. I took an intercept and scored the match-winning try. And afterwards, people looked at me differently and I looked at myself differently because I was like, I didn't, I didn't stuff that up. I don't know what, I was so in the moment. There was, if I'd known it was 30 seconds to go, I probably would have fumbled. If I'd known it was the match winning try, I probably would have fumbled. But it was just, it just happened. And then a few months after that, the coach at the time said, um, look, the captain's injured. I need you to captain the team. And I was like, I can't captain a team. I'm an idiot. I'm the jester. I'm the fool that, 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 and he was like, Mate, you're a leader. You're already a leader on the field. And it was such a wake-up call. It's completely, genuinely changed the way I look at life. I've now realised I don't have to be a loser all the time. Did, that- you, did you really think that – I mean, I understand comedically what you're saying. Like, you know, that there was – like, I mean, yes. Like, I mean, all my stories are self-deprecating and, you know, have me in some state of peril that – 
over-represents mostly the state of peril <laughs> that I was actually in at the time, right? Like, sure, sure. So I absolutely understand what you mean comedically, but I also don't feel like that means that I feel like I... Like, did you really carry that into your life, do you think, that you really felt like that you couldn't... Like, are you a leader at work? I imagine you would be a leader at Spicks and Specs or a leader at The Last Leg. Like, surely you've had other aspects of your world that have involved you being the, you know, the leader of them. That's a really good point. I mean, I guess in a way I was kind of... Yeah, I, th I think when you think about Spicks and Specs, I was kind of in the middle. I was kind of like, I guess, the leader. But I, I certainly was... I wasn't the winner, though. You know, there was a, there was a reason I wasn't on the panel. I wasn't competing... Um, I, no, I just figured I would be the guy that would fumble whatever it was that I was given. I'm the clumsy guy. I'm the goof. Uh, I just assumed that was me. And, and like, and, I mean, I, I guess when I was making Spicks and Specs, I wasn't even thinking about it. I, in, in weirdly, when I was making Spicks and Specs, I felt like everybody else was the winner, whether it was this team or that team. And I was there to make everybody else look good. I was certainly not in my mind, the alpha. I was definitely not the alpha on Spicks and Specs. Um, nor did I feel that way on the last leg. Um, it's, no, it's, it's you're, I mean, you've probably got to the heart of all of this is like, why would I feel like that? I mean, there's... <laughs> yeah, I mean, that know? is my question and that was certainly <laughs> going to be my follow-up question because I don't think it even read like that. And this is an interesting topic. Like, I love, you know, the difference between how we think we're perceived versus how we are perceived and even the idea that there is any unilateral, like, you know, the way that one person perceives you. I mean, we, I say this to people all the time. I say, you can never get a big head. Like I've had much more success than I would ever imagine that I could have had in my entire life. And most people think I'm Adam Hills. Like, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> like it's good. It's leveling. Uh, you know, in fact, like I look at it as a real blessing in my perception of of perception, you know, that I realised that it didn't actually matter how, like, I mean, I was literally in a car one day uh, and I was being driven to, like, a fancy corporate event, like, in this, like, you know, limousine. You couldn't have felt more special in your entire life to, you know, be doing something. And the guy who was driving me is espousing how big a fan he is of Gruen and he watches every episode. And, like, just one of those days where if you were going to, you know, feel like Kanye West, like, you would have <laughs> felt like Kanye West. And within the same breath, he had the capacity to pull the rug from out under it, which was... He said to me, and he said, but I do have one question. And he said, so do you pre-tape Gruen or do you pre-tape The Last Leg? Because one's in London, <laughs> isn't it? And I am like, what are you talking about? Like you honestly, this guy who sat obviously sat there and watched the two shows back to back <laughs> and somehow his brain had rationalised that the two people and who don't look – like, in that, like in that the same. It's not like we're the Winklevoss fucking twins. So I do think that there is an Australian self-deprecation yep. that absolutely, you know, you would be an insufferable Australian if you, like, had a, you know, alpha status 
potentially in, in that. So I think it's inherent. So yeah. I, I get that and I understand it and I empathize with it. But I don't think it's how you were perceived. Like I think if if people think of Spicks and Specs or your stand up at the time or whatever, that you had not an alpha energy, but like not a, not that it was a new version of something like, you know, you certainly were sensitive at all these things, but your performance or your confidence, it didn't feel that you were a person racked by nerves or, you know, that you were, that you felt like you weren't the winner in the room. I don't think that's how it read to people. So I was just interested to hear that that was what was going on inside. And of course, by the way, this is just a long ramble, but I mean, The reason I'm talking about this is not to kind of trap you or like – because I find these the most interesting conversations because I'm sure there's a million of them, you know, constant – like I'm constantly having thoughts that probably aren't what people think or or whatever. Absolutely. And like it's funny, I would never – have expected it to have come across on on camera or on stage because that's where I'm in control. That's the moment Uh where, you know, there's there's a great old quote. I think it's from Bono, which which is – when I'm on stage, I'm closer to the person I'd like to be off stage. Uh-huh. And I think it's great. Like the whole point of getting on stage is because, mm. oh, now I can be, con- I can present the version of myself uh-huh. that I really want people to think I am. I can sustain this for one hour. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, look, and coming to Speaks and Specs, there is no way uh-huh. I would have spoken to someone like like Jenny Morris. Mm. I mean that that who brings up so many and I I she's the first person to pop into my head because I think, you know, as a as a teenager I love Jenny Morris and then also she's a big star and I'm a bit starstruck. If I met her on the street, I'd be oh, oh, hi Jenny Morris, like be like the, you know, the kid from the Simpsons. I need to call my manager. But because I was in the role playing the role of the host of a show trying to talk her through and talk everyone through a rehearsal, I just became this person and it was like, yeah, like I remember during the show, that show in particular, her answering a question and me saying, Jenny, correct, nice work. And in my head thinking, you're, you're, you're saying her first name as if you're friends. Like inside my head, I'm like, this is ridiculous. So I guess I was playing a bit of a role. And look, I'm, I'm not, I'm not about to say, oh my God, my life's racked with anxiety or anything like that. Like I'd, I'd, made my peace with the fact that I was a bit of a continual stuff up. And no, I f- no, no, I, mean, I just think it's fascinating for people because also there's a lot of people listening who think they're stuffing stuff up, uh, who, you know, might just be thinking it and, yeah, that idea that you can be. But also when you explained it more, I started to understand it more because I think that I get what you mean. The show gave you authority and it's like the show's like a stamp that says – I personally don't feel like I have authority, but because I am the host of this show, that the authority comes with the job, yeah, right? Like, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Yeah. like the fact that like an organization has, look, there's sets and like there's people <laughs> who bring me a coffee. So I assume that all just indicates that like I have authority, right? There's structures in place to give you authority that you probably weren't feeling yourself. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I still remember turning up for the first day at Speaks and Specs and tur- walking into the studio for the first time and seeing the set and going and just suddenly realising what a responsibility mm-hmm. it was. Everyone's got to a real fuss here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, very much so. So it wasn't like, it wasn't. I mean, I don't know. Do you, I remember Ross Noble. 
I don't have a, you know, getting back to the mm. point of what I know you're going to ask me at some point about my philosophy on life. Well, you know, well why don't we say it now? Because it feels like you're the sort of person that, well, let's get rip the Band-Aid off and get it off your chest and then we can, it can infuse everything, you know, because it's going to be connected to your stories. You know, you're a person who thinks about life in terms of what life is about, whereas for some people when I have them on this show, it very much is – the, when I ask the question, is pretty much the first time they've ever considered the concept of having a life <laughs> philosophy. You know, so I think it's probably why don't why don't we start with that and you can tell your story then. Okay. Well, I think I mean the truth is, mm. this. Okay, I don't know what my life philosophy yeah. is to be genuine to to be genuine about it. I I feel like it's very strange. I feel like I have a sense of it, but I can't put words to it in the way that. Um, I do like Taoism and the study of Taoism. And I, I love that the first line of the Tao Te Ching can be interpreted in about a hundred different ways, depending on how you view the Chinese language. But the one I love the most is that the Tao that can be explained is not the true Tao, which basically says, we've written this whole book explaining the way of the universe. But if you can explain the way of the universe, you haven't explained the way of the universe. So I kind of feel like that when it comes to my philosophy on life. And they're like, oh, I know what it is. I just can't put words to it. And so... Every now and then I'll hear something that goes that I'm like, oh, mm -hmm. oh that's closest to it. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. um, and the one I was about to, to come out with was from Ross Noble, which was about just doing stand-up generally, which probably also applies to life, which was I remember him saying, when it, when, especially when it comes to ad-libbing on stage, you've got to care so much about doing a good job that you don't give a fuck. And it was brilliant advice of going on stage, and you know that as well yourself, when you're ad-libbing. It's not that you don't give a shit. You give so much of a shit. And this is probably how I feel about life as well. I give so much of a shit about life that I know the best way to get through it is to just let go and go with the flow a little bit, which is also very Taoist to go with the flow. But, yeah, I think when it comes to comedy and, and, and also, you know, when it came to Spicks and Specs and when it came to The Last Leg, just – go with it. I never felt like I had to be an authority on the last leg. Uh, oh, sorry, on Spicks and Specs. Last leg a little bit, but there's a, there's a moment where you just take a deep breath and go, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing here, but, um, but I, I either back out or I just jump into it and have a crack. Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. Like I, so firstly, the not being able to put it into words, I get that. That's time travel in movies to me. You don't need to have, you don't need to explain how the time travel works. Yeah. Because guess what? We don't have time travel. So whatever your explanation's about to be, it's not actually the explanation of time travel. So as long as the rules are consistent to the universe in which the story is operating, I don't care for you explaining how the time travel works, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Don't need to put it in words. It just needs to have that sense of it. But I do understand that idea of you know, okay, well this is my life and I do care very much about it and I want to – it's often, you know, as you said, to put it through that stage prism, which is a, probably a simple way to talk about it, which is you've got to care so much but then you do have to walk out there and look like – because what the audience need to know from you is that you're in charge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you don't need to – like you've got to know – they've got to know. 
The example I always give is the captain's announcement at the start of the play. None of us need that information, right? Like we don't need to know 30,000 feet. We don't need to know what direction you're taking off. We don't need any of that information. That is literally just a subtle clue that someone up the front has thought this through and made a plan so the rest of us can sit back and relax and do the sweet fuck all about like flying the plane that we're all required to do, right? Yeah. And that's what – they need from you as a performer but it's hard it's so hard to be that particularly when as i have been as ross noble i'm sure has been at some stage and as you have you know said that you have been when you have haven't felt like you Mm. are the captain who can reassure everyone so when you didn't feel like that but you had to go and put on those clothes and be that for other people yeah like how did you do that that, well, you asking that question takes me straight to Leighton Live, Edinburgh, uh, probably about 2001. It, for those who don't know, it was a show that started at 1.15am in, <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> I mean, at that it was billed as the comedy abattoir where comedians yep. go to die. And I... And when Adam co- says it was billed as that, like for people who don't understand, it was literally like... I mean, there's a very famous story of Anthony, like people getting glassed and Anthony Morgan glassing himself to get their attention. Like, you know, all, it, it was billed for a long time as this gladiator like style late yeah. night. Really, like, I mean, this was as, as hard as comedy got in a way, right? If you could prove yourself there, it was a real badge of honour because so many people had – there were so many cor- icy corpses you had to climb over to get to the <laughs> yeah. summit. I mean, I, I emceed the night Russell Brand had a glass thrown at him, yeah. which missed, shattered in the backstage hallway, and then Fiona Lachlan went out on stage and pulled a shard of glass out of her leg. Uh, and went, well, that's ruined that pair of pants and then went on with her act. So, and every time, you know, as that show was about to start, you'd be backstage, you could hear the crowd and the the floor, the, the um, stage manager would come backstage and go, all right, are you ready? And you go, yeah, I'm ready. And then the music would kick in, which was Marilyn Manson. I think it was Beautiful People. So you can imagine it's 1.15 in the morning, 600 drunken people at the fringe. Marilyn Manson kicks Mm. in and you're (laughs) about to go out on stage and emcee it. And I would just be head down, kicking the wall, going, what am I doing? What am I doing? And then even backstage as you're about to walk, you're ladies and gentlemen, you're like, and the crowd are like, and you think, what am I doing? And then the second I heard my name, I just walked out there and it was like none of that mattered and I was in control and it was really okay. I don't know if it was fake it till you make it. I don't know if it was – I don't know whether the adrenaline pushed me through. I don't know. Not, I, but I know that all of those fears of, oh, my God, this is going to go horribly wrong led to it being a better gig. Now, I'm pausing because what's interesting for me is that I – I've not really done a lot of stand-up lately. I mean, COVID, you know, stopped us all. And then I did a lot of lockdowns and hotel quarantines going back and forth to the UK, which meant when I did get out on stage, I forgot how to talk to people. And then the rugby league kind of took over. So in the meantime, from that kind of I'm the loser going on stage, but I'll, I'll fake it, I've learnt that I don't necessarily have to be the loser anymore. Mm-hmm. I've learnt that I can actually contribute to a team. I can lead a team. So about a month ago, I was in Dublin. I was, I, I was asked to do the Dublin Comedy Festival, Ivy Gardens Comedy Festival, just 20-minute spots. I thought, yeah, I'll do that. I'll do that. 
I ended up, it's one of those crazy ones where I did a Friday night last leg. So we filmed live from 10 till 11, got in a car at 11.30, was driven three and a half hours to Wigan, checked into a hotel at three in the morning, got up at eight, covered rugby league for Channel 4 until three in the afternoon, was driven to Liverpool, flew to Dublin, (laughs) went on stage that night at 10.30 and just had one of the best gigs I've had ever. And then the next night it was even better. And there was a really weird moment of, and I, it's only now that I'm thinking back going, I wonder if it was because I wasn't, it wasn't cocky. I certainly mm. didn't go on stage going, oh, I've got this nailed. No. But I wonder if that kind of self-deprecation has slowly slipped away a little bit. Do you know what I mean? And I just, just went out there and kind of, I don't know, just went with it. I, what I don't know. What do you think, like... How did it manifest itself, I guess? How did it, like, how, what was the difference? Like, was it just the way you felt or do you think it was actually your, like, style of delivery or what you were talking about or the way you were talking about things? Like, was there, like, if I, if somebody was watching it who'd watched you, you know, five years ago and then watched this, do you think they would have seen something, like, that they would have noticed something different? I don't know if they would have noticed me being different or the crowd being different. I, For me, I would say it felt, this is a weird way of putting it, it felt a little bit more zen. And I use that word because the last time I saw Sean Hughes, you know, rest his soul, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, I remember I found it remarkable how little work he seemed to be doing to get the laughs. Like I've always found, you know, you work for the laugh and you really, you know, sometimes you have to sell a joke. And I, I noticed myself shouting and really putting a lot of energy into it to go, come on. And I remember watching Sean going, he's not doing that much. And he's getting killed. Like he's, it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like you do comedy and then the more you do it, the more you realize what you don't need to do in order to get the laugh. And it reminds a lot of what... a lot. I'm realizing now a lot of my philosophy on life is based on either Buddhism or Taoism. I've read a lot of Taoism, whether it's the, it started with the Tao of Pooh for anyone who wants an entry level <laughs> into Taoism. And then it became, I think, Alan Watts, the watercourse way, um, which was an examination of the Tao Te Ching. Um, and there are always lovely little stories in Taoism. And one of them I remember was about a butcher who never sharpened his knives. And all the other butchers were jealous and they were like, why, why, we are constantly sharpening our knives or buying new knives. Why don't you? And he just said, cause I know where to cut. And it was such a lovely, it was, it's not about how hard you cut or how sharp your knife is. It's where you make the cut, where you cut the meat, knowing that you have the least resistance and you can just slice through it. Another way of putting it is it's like the joke. <laughs> it's like the joke about the guy that goes to get his hair cut. And the hairdresser just cuts four hairs and then says that'll be, you know, $200. And the guy's like, well, I could have cut four hairs at home. And the hairdresser says, yes, but would you have known which four to cut? Yeah, it's- yeah I understand that. So that, that makes a, a lot of sense to me because, I mean, look, it's certainly my own personal experience as well is that one of the most interesting things about when I'm doing my improv shows, my crowd work shows, is that mm. – my best ones are where I'm not trying too hard. Yeah. Like if I just let, if I give myself a moment to react rather than to be thinking of what the line is or forcing (laughs) something to say immediately, but just the amount of laughs I get on 
how I turn my body or like use my face when someone says like, you know what I mean? Those yeah. moments where you're like, oh, this has never really been part of my painting palette. But <laughs> because I've slowed down and let it have a moment and let it have a natural moment, like yeah. it, I really respond to what you were saying about it's like learning where to like, I was like, you know, getting the big knife and cutting in straight away, trying to like <laughs> yeah, hack it all the way to the comedy. Whereas sometimes it's about like taking that moment to assess where the, best place to slice is right that's cool i like that that's that'll stay with me that's a cool one i like it well and another similar one that that also i think applies to comedy and i've i've mentioned it recently doing a few tv shows is um yeah there's been a couple of tv shows i've had to do where things have fallen apart last minute or the the tech's not working or we've rewritten the show on the day and you're like oh my god what's going to happen and i remember saying to the producer okay this reminds me of another Taoist tale of an old an old man and a young man fall into a river at exactly the same point, raging river, and they get tossed downstream and the young man tries to swim against it and he's trying to swim upstream and he can't. He tries to get to the shore and he can't. By the time he gets to the other end, he's spat out onto the shore. He's got a, a broken leg, a broken arm, cuts and scratches everywhere. And he's spat out exactly next to the old man who doesn't have a scratch on him at all. And he looks at the old man and goes, how come I'm injured? I've got broken bones and bruises and you're not. And the old man goes, because you tried to fight it. I just went with it. Like for me, comedically, and when a TV show looks like it's all going to fall apart, all life generally, often if you just go with it. And that's kind of what Taoism, the watercourse way, the idea of just, you know, that phrase, go with the flow. It comes from somewhere. It's not just a Californian guy on a surfboard. (laughs) So, well, then go with the flow comedically because, like, I mean, you, late in live it was a good starting point for that story because that was a rough room, but you were not a rough comedian. And it was an interesting choice in the first place. Like, if I went and saw your show, it was very joyful and about, you know, like togetherness and like coming together as an audience and people. And these were your themes that you were working with, right? Whereas, Late and Live was traditionally, you know, not that sort of gig. And so the fact that you – why did you want to do it in the first place? Like, before we get to how you mastered it and tamed it, like, why did – what was the impulse within you? Can you remember that said, you know, that, that you wanted to kind of throw yourself into the, the hardest gig there was? I think because it was the hardest gig there was. I think I wanted yeah. to conquer it. So I, what's I remember- that? Where does that come from? Mm. Um, I mean, on the, ne- <laughs> I mean, if you want to be negative, a desperate need for approval. <laughs> yeah. But you can get approval at easier gigs. Like, you know what I mean? Like that is, yeah, but, I mean, and it's whole- also a recipe for disaster. You're like, <laughs> this is the Christians versus the lions and you're on the side of the Christians. The lions have got a good record, man. Yeah. And you're like first day at Christian school. You're like, you know what? I reckon I'm ready for the lions. But there's something in me that goes. I, re- I reckon. I reckon I can win one of the lions over. Yeah, yeah. I reckon. I reckon that they'll be charmed by me. That's. I think it's. I mean, it was. It's a combination of you know stupidity, recklessness, bravado, but also, um, you know, a love for comedy. Like at that point, the Edinburgh Fringe was the biggest arts festival in the world, and um, Late and Live was considered the toughest gig on the planet. So why not have a crack? Like I remember my first ever late and live. I did all right. I didn't do amazing, but I did all right. And um, Dave, was it Dave Johns or Andre Vincent? 
Dave, basically two comedians mm. came out from the bar to watch me. And I think, um, I think it was Andre Vincent said he was watching and Dave Johns walked up to him and a lot of comedians apparently had come out from the bar to watch me. And Dave looked at Andre and went, oh, look at all the comedians circling for the kill. <laughs> and Andre went, I quite like Adam. And Dave went, oh, I like him too. I fucking want to see him die. <laughs> and then the biggest compliment I got was like 10 minutes later, all the comedians got yeah. bored and went back to the bar because yeah. I You were dying. So I don't know where that yeah. came from, but I do remember nights where, you know, because in amongst all this, I probably coincidentally, but probably, you know, in the way of the universe for a good reason, then the, the year before or the year that I went to Edinburgh, I learnt Reiki, which is, you know, hands-on energy. Um, and I was in Adelaide at the time and I've learned a couple of levels of Reiki since then. And by no means, and by the way, the biggest thing that we were taught about Reiki, which I love, we were never taught it was alternative medicine, alternative healing. We were always taught it was complementary. Our Reiki master was always like, no, if there's medicine, take the medicine. <laughs> But do Reiki as well. Mm. Don't don't just go. No, no, no. I think this Reiki will cure my cancer. Yeah. No, no, no. I mean, in general, that's the that is the general stumbling block. Like we're not saying you can't do your thing. We're mm. just saying don't do your thing at the expense of the proven thing. <laughs> like Absolutely. if you want to do your thing as well, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I reckon. Yeah, eat fresh fruit and vegetables. Seems like a good idea. Just not <laughs> instead of the chemo. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And that's what we were taught. Um, and I remember a few occasions in Edinburgh of people coming backstage. A friend of my, a really good friend of mine, Eddie Bannon, saying, "Oh, I think this audience needs a bit of Reiki tonight." Mm-hmm. And so maybe there was a channel. Uh, a challenge of trying to win them over. But eventually it got to the point where, you know, the the hosts were myself and Ross yes. Noble and Daniel Kitson. No, it became a very different, well, not entirely different, but uh, the, the energy changed. It did. But I also learned so many lessons from that. I remember one night Arthur Smith uh, wandering up on stage and heck, well, Arthur Smith heckling Daniel Kitson from the audience and then getting up on stage really drunk and then him being heckled off stage and me kind of coming out afterwards and saying something like, do you know what? We've tried to turn this into a really lovely gig. And then one drunken old fucker comes along and just ruins it for everyone. <laughs> and afterwards, Boothby Graffo came up to me backstage, who's another comedian, and said, you owe that man an apology. I said, why? And he said, because, okay, think about what's going on. He's probably not having a good fringe. He needs people to know he's at the fringe. And now people do know he's at the fringe. Also, I don't know if you noticed, he said, but two-thirds of the audience were booing for him to get off stage, but the other third wanted yeah. him to stay on. So by, yes. by calling him a drunken old fucker, you've actually alienated one-third of mm. your audience. Mm. So what you could have done is walked him off stage like a kindly old grandpa going, yeah. come on, we'll put you back to the home, and you've won everyone over. And... Um, I remember going up to Arthur after that and saying, look, I do owe you an apology. I did the wrong thing. And he went, he was great. He went, there's no wrong things in comedy, but you could have done a better thing. Yes. That's what a lesson, right? (laughs) What an amazing lesson, right? Yes. There's no wrong things. I mean, you could take all of these lessons and apply them to life. There's no, you know, there's no wrong things, but you can always do better things. Yes. Or you can always at least ask the question. Like, I'm, yes. You know, is there a better thing? Yeah. And it's often a question 
that I ask, I mean, you know, doing a show like Gruen in particular where, you know, we're 16 years into that show now, like you're constantly trying to challenge yourself and look for, you know, engagement in the show. And I do feel like the question that we most often go to are the two of like, it's just like, could we do this better? Like, this is good. This is, I'm not saying, you know, learn very early on that the best way to like to say to a team is not like, yeah, this is bad or this is not good or like, you know, we haven't got this right. It's like, is it, could this be better? Yeah. Is there a better yeah. version of this? Or could somebody else do it better? That's the other <laughs> one I always think of. I was like, could somebody else? Yeah. And if some, if the answer is no, if the answer is yes, then you go, okay, well, we, we can do it better than them. What would we do? But if the answer is no, sometimes you go, okay, well, we've done the best we can do, right? Sometimes there isn't a better. Yeah. It's not perfect, but you also can't find a better. You know, like I think that's important that sometimes you've looked for the better, you've tried better, and you you have to just go, that was, I guess, the best we could do in a bad situation. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, really, what a, I mean, there's a philosophy. Like, you know, I remember saying this even about something on Father's Day, putting out a post and just going, you know, all you can do is do your best, especially mm. as a parent. But as as anything, just there's a, there's an amazing book that I just read um, called Unreasonable Hospitality, and it was <laughs> it was recommended to me because I, I invested in a restaurant in London. Oh my uh, god! I know. Look at you with an Australian <laughs> chef by the name of Scott Hallsworth, who is a top like this is uh-huh. the most Aussie thing ever. Uh, he used to be the head chef at Nobu. Um, yes. he, he catered Victoria Beckham's 40th, although I, that's mm-hmm. probably a secret. Um, he did Adele's third. Like he's, ama- he's an amazing chef. <clears throat> and he uh, had an incredible restaurant. It closed down during COVID because of the, you know, all the, the pressures. And so I said, yeah, look, I'll help you with your new restaurant. And I love it. I absolutely love it. And he's amazing. He's like, he treats cooking the way we treat comedy in the, someone, so a friend of mine said to him recently, do you have books beside your bed so that you wake up if you wake up in the middle of the night and he went no no I have books on my bed I sleep with books and I wake up in the night and I write ideas down and like you know he was telling me he 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 left some um, sweet potato in the oven and forgot to cook it and left it for like a week and it fermented and then he went I wonder what would happen if I put that in some apple cider vinegar and then created this sweet potato and apple cider vinegar dipping sauce (laughs) like he's got that kind of mind and he suggested a book to me called um, Unreasonable Hospitality. And it was written by a guy who ran what became the best restaurant in the world, 11 Madison Park in New York. I don't, have you seen The Bear, the TV show The Bear at all? I have, yes. Okay, there's constant references to 11 Madison Park. And in fact, if you've seen season two, there's a whole episode based around this book. Because the book starts with them being named the 50th best restaurant in the world. And it was about how disappointed they were. And so they kept asking themselves, how can we do better? What can we do better? And it started with little things like overhearing a couple saying, oh, man, the parking meter is about to run out. And so this guy went, tell me your license plate, tell me where you're parked, I'll go and fill it up for you. And then it became a couple who came for their anniversary and he overheard them say, oh, we've left the champagne in the refrigerator, in the freezer at home. And he went, where do you live? give me your keys, I'll go home and take it out for you. And then left like chocolates and an anniversary card for them. And then eventually went, how can we do this for everyone? And then employed people to make a unique experience for everyone coming along, you know, to the restaurant. But basically it's about the little 1% things that you think, okay, can this be slightly better? Are we just accepting that this is the way we do things? 
And having read that, I went back to the last leg for our most recent series and kind of took that even to the script and went, okay, you know how I say this bit every show, just as a formatic, what would happen if I said that differently? Or what would happen if we didn't do that bit? That bit doesn't need to be there. What if we just do this instead? It's just constantly asking yourself exactly what you just said. Can I be doing this slightly better? And if the answer is no, then hooray, you're, you're already doing it the best you can. Uh, how do you stop that from being, you know, then the fine line between going, I always want to improve. Are you able to be happy though in the moment now? Like, you know, with like, so Ooh. it feels like you have been playing rugby league. It feels mm-hmm. like there's moments there where, you know, because you're in the game and you're playing your role and you're doing what you need to do that like you're in the moment, right? You have yeah, to be in that yeah. moment. And certainly being on stage, like you said, when you walk out there, you know, when it's your time to assume that role that you can do that, you know, uh, there's a great guy, a guy called Sam Peterson who will be, I'm sure, listening to this and Sam uh, is amused by this quote, but I bring it up all the time, which is the Barry Humphreys quote about, you know, walking out on stage and, you know, he was asked what it was like to walk out on stage in front of, you know, 3,000 people and he said, ah, oh, alone at last. You know? <laughs> and... Yeah. So talk to me about just that idea of like, I don't know, being in like in control, whether you can feel like you're in control, like. Okay. So that's, that's a really interesting point because like, that's exactly what it's like on stage when it's going well, you're just in the moment. You're absolutely in the moment. And I found that a little bit with rugby league because you're part of a team. I mean, most of the time I'm on the wing, but you know, I've played various positions you don't have time. You, you're kind of – our captain has a, has a degree in sports science and he was telling me that when you exercise as part of a team, you give off something like seven times as many endorphins as when you exercise on your own because you're – it's a social thing. You're connecting with other people. You're looking at the people opposite you. you but it's, you know, it's communal. So there is a moment where you can lose yourself in the team in a really, really good way. And you're exactly right. You, you can actually live in that moment. And that's why I love rugby league and I love training as well because there's just for an hour, there's nothing else to think about. You're thinking of, you're just there with your mates and you're, you're bouncing off each other. Um, even to the point where I, I was hosting a TV show in London, Stand Up to Cancer, and the rugby team came down to be part of a segment. And when they walked on set and we went through our bit, my writer, Adam Vincent, who's an Australian comedian, said to me, oh, I'm jealous. And I went, of what? And he went, I wish I had a group of mates that I could just be like that with, that I just knew so well and there's no bullshit and there's no kind of industry stuff. So, but what's, what I find really fascinating about what you just brought up is that, so I injured, I, I injured myself at training about oh, five months ago. I tore something called my IT band, which goes from your hip to your knee. And it's a pretty bad one. Like the, the, the specialist told me, oh, you've probably got six months until you can play again. He said, because this is serious and you're not 18. And there might be a point where my rugby might be done. I don't know. I'm just going to, I've still got another month of recovery. Let's see how it goes. But I've also started playing tennis and it turns out there's disability tennis. Now, the interesting thing for me is that I was a tennis coach. I played tennis since I was five. I played competitively. I played A grade competition. I played men's grade competition. I coached always with able-bodied people. The only way I could play against people with disability is if I get into a wheelchair, mm-hmm. which is not my natural state of playing tennis. So there's never, in no. a weird way, there's never been a way into tennis, disability tennis for me. 
And there's just slowly this movement worldwide of people who can't get in a wheelchair, like people who are short statured or cerebral palsy or arm amputees or whatever. So I might start moving more into tennis. Now, I find it much harder to be in the moment when I'm playing tennis because it's just me in my own Mm -hmm. head. I can't be part of a team. I can't lose myself in the collective good. I'm alone on court with my own thoughts. (laughs) That is a lot harder to be in the moment with. Because you've got your own self-doubts on every shot. You're overthinking everything. So it's a fascinating um, mm. progression for me. With a completely different mindset in what you might be getting out of it. It's not just swapping one sport for another sport, right? Like mm. Because you talk about this rugby, and I was going to ask you about the idea of whether there was a end date to just physically when you would be able to sustain it, but you've already answered that question in what you said. Like even if this isn't, like the death of your rugby career that you've seen the immortality, you've seen like that it's not immortal. Like, you know (laughs) what I mean? That it is going to die at some stage and you will have to mourn it and you can replace it, but it's not going to be the same because the rugby experience is a team and a group of blokes and whatever. And the tennis experience, while can also be something that, you know, will be social and interactive and all these sort of things, it, it, it is a very different thing. Absolutely. And look, that's that's one of the great things about um, playing disability rugby league is that it, it doesn't just give people with a disability a chance to play their favourite sport. It gives them a chance to feel what it's like to be part of a team. And that doesn't always happen when you've got a disability. And I didn't, to be honest, I didn't get it until I did it. And those blokes will be mates for life. You know, I've been to their weddings. We, we You know, we've seen children being born, all that kind of stuff. And there is a thing, you know, when you're standing on your try line with two guys on either side of you and you've got to put your body on the line, you know it's going to hurt, but you know that if you don't hurt yourself, he's going to get hurt even more. There's a, there's a real primal thing about that. So there's a real bond. Whereas you're exactly right, tennis, completely different thing, completely different thing. I mean, I've been, I've been playing against Husey a lot. Mm. Husey's a great tennis player. There's a lot of good male comedian tennis players like it and i i've there's actually quite a lot you obviously hear you hear people all the time going oh you know that he's really good at tennis i'm like i did not know that but it does not surprise me because it seems to be i don't know it's like a not a cliche but like a I wonder if there is something psychological about the solo role of the stand-up and the solo role of the tennis player. I've like... never thought that, but absolutely. In fact, my, the, probably the person that inspired me to get into comedy as much as anyone was a tennis player called Henri Leconte because he oh, was yeah. funny. He was both. He was, he was the other side. Absol- he was a funny tennis player. You're like... <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. But you're right. You, yes. You're out there on your own with only your own right. thoughts and the crowd and an opponent. Yeah, I think I, it's why also like tennis is the easiest crowd of all time. Like, you know, if you ever need to entertain <laughs> yeah. a crowd, like they're the most easily, yeah. like as a professional tennis player, it's not like you need to be Abbott and Costello to get like a laugh from the crowd. As long as you <laughs> like run over the tri line, over the end line in, and sit in someone's seat or sip their <laughs> champagne. Or, like, I mean, this is... The height of comedy in the tennis. <laughs> Bravo, sir. Bravo. <laughs> I'd never, I'd, you know what? No, that yeah. makes perfect sense. It is such yeah. a one out sport. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, and it, funnily enough, the last time I saw Husey, we were talking about mindfulness and how to apply that to the tennis court and how those lessons apply to life and just take every shot as it comes. 
Don't don't plan too far ahead. Just and I did actually get to int- um, interview Henri Leconte a few years back um, as part of a charity event, and I said to him, "What was it like when you were in the zone?" Because he was one of those players that were mercurial. When he was on, he was unbeatable. I remember, you know, at Wimbledon one year, he took McEnroe like six one in one of the sets because he was just unstoppable. And he said, I was just exactly that. He said, I was just in the moment, in the zone. And he said, not, he said, I was hitting shots, but I knew where the next five shots were going to, I knew what I was going to hit and how he would return it and how this whole point would play out. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I guess the ideal of life is to be in that moment is to be in that zone where you're not thinking you're just being. Do you have, feel like you have, like lots of moments like that, few moments like that, some moments like that, like, you know, talk me through how that applies mm. to your life. I notice when it happens. Mm. I, 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 I what notice. does it feel like when it happens? The best way to describe it to you is, is it feels like when you're on stage and things are just clicking. Sometimes in life, <laughs> i tell you what it feels like. Okay, this is the best way to describe mm-hmm. it. You know that scene in The Simpsons where I, I think maybe Bart is struggling with something maybe, and, and Homer gives him good advice and then he walks into Lisa's room and I think she maybe she's having trouble with her homework and he helps her. Then he walks past Maggie's room and notices her dummy has fallen out. She's asleep and she's crying so he pops the dummy back in. Then he gets into bed with Marge and turns the lights out and then you hear Marge go, Oh, homie. And he just says, shut up, Marge, I'm on a roll. (laughs) (laughs) That is the best way I can just, every now and again, I have a moment in life. And, you know, look, London life for me at the moment is is kind of feeling like that. You know, uh, I'm an investor in a restaurant that's going quite well and is so much fun to be at. You know, I'm making the last leg. I'm covering rugby league for Channel 4. There are moments where I might, I'll just say, I literally will say to myself, shut up, Marge, I'm on a roll. That's the only way I can describe it. So how do you, I mean, because that is, you know... (laughs) like some good key pillars of how your life is going, right? Like, Mm. you know, some good fun. Like, you know, it's a real Ryan Reynolds vibe that you're giving (laughs) off here. (laughs) Having fun, making money, being successful, living the dreams, you know. (laughs) But but how – like, I mean, that's – I I think that part of the reason that people respond to Ryan – you know, is you go, he kind of is like, yes, that is good things to be doing with, you know, your fame and with your privilege. And, you know, like these seem to be, you're helping other people, but you're also having some fun. You're doing some things that are outside specifically your area of interest, like, you know, broadening, broadening your interests. Like, have you always been a person who has had broad interests? Like, you know, because like some people with the level of success. So if you were Jimmy Carr, let's say, right, Jimmy would be leveraging the success that he's having 
with the last leg into other shows that are like the last leg and be hosting every show on television and then touring. And, and I'm not dismissing that. I mean, mm, that's mm. been very, super successful for Jimmy, but that's how he's leveraged it is like, whereas you're like going, I'm going to like, you know, play rugby league and do this documentary. I'm going to invest in a restaurant and, you know, have some fun with that. I'm going to like, it's a more diverse way of, um, you know, kind of ch channeling your, um, passion and your enthusiasm has that always been part of your makeup? I think I think the word fun, as trite mm. as it sometimes can be, is the key to all of that. Like I remember, I remember very early on someone asking me what I did for a living or what my jobs were out of high school, and I went, "Well, I was a, a debating adjudicator, mm -hmm. a tennis coach, <laughs> and then stand-up comic, and mm. then I worked as a stagehand at Channel Nine. And then I worked at writing jokes for a radio show and whoever it was went, did, did you just, did your careers advisor just say, just do things that are fun. Yeah. Fun think, and don't like, don't seem like a real job. <laughs> 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 I think I've always had that feeling that, you know, life's too short to do, yeah, to do okay. something you don't want to do. And then having said that, I realized that sometimes you have to, like sometimes you have to do a job that you're like, Oh God, this is a job that, you know, we've done gigs like that. We've, we've done various, we've all done jobs like that. Um, but I think early on, I, I, I did just want to have fun. Do you know what? Now that you ask me that, I remember being on radio many, many, many oh, years ago, working with Wendy Harmer. Uh, and it was Wendy Harmer, Paul Holmes, Jamie Dunn, who was aggro. And I think we were all out after, you know, a show one day. And I think Wendy's asked something like, I think we were going around saying, what's your advice for life? You know, what, what, what's your motto? What's your advice for life? And I think I said, just have fun. And I remember her saying, yeah, that's a very 21 year old thing to say, <laughs> but I think the older I've got and, you know, look, have fun whilst also being aware of everyone around you. Don't have fun to the detriment of other people. And but also occasionally check back in on what your idea of fun is. Yeah. Like redefine your idea yeah. of fun because if you're still having the fun that you thought was fun when you were 25, when you're 55, then, <laughs> I mean, just check back in. Maybe you are, yeah, but listen. maybe it's just become an awful <laughs> habit that's destroyed everyone around you. <laughs> I think being aware of other people is also a big part of life. Yeah. And I think, you know, my, I remember my grandfather, I remember talking about this on stage, my grandfather saying that his philosophy on life was family and helping people. I mean, I think when it comes down to that, that's pretty much it. But I think being there for other people probably is is really the point of life, is doing what you can as much as possible for other people whilst – but also, okay, I'm, I'm holding mm. myself up there. There's that great analogy about parenting that – I remember reading this analogy about parenting that said it's like – you know how on, the, on an aeroplane they say fit your own oxygen mask before fitting yes. others? You can't – because you can't help someone else if you're gasping for breath. Make sure you're okay. And it was like that with parenting. Make, don't just put everything aside for the sake of your children. Make sure that you're fulfilled and then you can be a better parent. And so that's probably the balance in life, isn't it? Is, is making sure that you're ful fulfilled and happy whilst also being there for other people. I think once you've filled your own cup up, then that's time to go, all right, what can I do for other people? And how do you decide then when your cup is sufficiently Ooh. filled before you allocate that other time? That's a good point. Does it even have to be filled? 
Does it, you know, could you do it with an empty cup? Surely that surely the ultimate in life would be to go, my cup's empty, but I'm still going to be here for other people. I mean, that is the ultimate, but that's not what we're doing. We're in show business. <laughs> like, we're doing our best with what we have. Like, <laughs> do, you know, I, do you know what? There is one life. If, if I had a life philosophy, the one that, uh, the, in fact, the first one I thought of when I thought of doing this show yes. was something that I read and I, I, I tried to I tried to to verify this recently, but I've read it once, and so and it stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Harold Ramis, um, Egon Spengler from Ghostbusters, yes. amazing comedy director and comedian generally, apparently carried a note in his wallet that said, "Life is ridiculous, so why not be one of the good guys?" For me, that's probably the closest I've got to hearing something that that I go, "Yeah, that's that'd be my philosophy." Yeah, life is ridiculous. So how then do you decide what constitutes being one of the good guys? Because this is where it gets really tricky, right? Is what does that mean? Like who's – how do you – like do you have a moral framework that – like I mean we've talked about, you know, various philosophies and I think, you know, you're clearly a person who thinks about these things. But do you – how do you – decide mm. you know what what this framework is by which you decide whether you're a nice guy or not or a nice one you know i don't mean the framing <laughs> of guy like probably indicates something else but i mean just you yeah. know if, if in this ridiculous life how ramus style yeah how do you define because some people would be like well i'm a christian so i define it by the fact that i follow the 10 commandments and i go to church on sunday and i you know don't blaspheme and here are these yeah, parameters yeah. and markers that are in place for me to now you could have a whole then debate about you know the levels of hypocrisy that could be involved in someone's life if they're but but it's a framework right by which they assess whether they're a good or bad person like what do you have a framework by which you assess that there's a couple of there's a buddhist prayer that i often say to myself uh before going on stage uh before doing the last leg uh on takeoffs and landings on flights <laughs> um and I won't go through the whole Buddhist prayer, but the end of it is uh, for the benefit of all other beings, living or dead. And I love that as a final saying, but there's also, there's a Reiki term as well, which is probably more prescient, which is for the greater good of all concerned. Like, and I, how you quantify that, I have absolutely no idea, but I'd like to think that you know when you're doing something for the greater good of all concerned. Like, are you doing the best thing for everybody? And sometimes it's impossible to do the best thing for everybody. But as far as being one of the good guys, I mean, helping other people, being there for them, lifting other people when you can. This, this, is, this is why I find it impossible to put it into words, to put a life philosophy into words. Because when I hear life is ridiculous, so why not be one of the good guys? I'm like, yeah, I know what that means. And then you say, well, how do you explain that? You're like, ah! not sure that I have the words for it. Again, there's another Taoist lesson of like, it's like try, it's like trying to show someone how beautiful a butterfly is by opening a book and showing them a butterfly that you've pinned into the book. <laughs> like, well, you've, you've pinned it down. That's, you've taken away most of what makes a butterfly amazing. So, I mean, that's an amazing point. How do you know when you're being one of the good guys? I'd like to think you know deep down, but, you know, I'm sure there are people throughout history that have thought they're being the good guys. 
Well, context does change as well, and it's from people's different perspectives. So, mm-hmm. one of the more interesting like parts of your career, I think, was because you'd always had a, like a moral core to the like you know you were talking about. I think you always talked about world issues, but I don't think because of specs and specs and these sort of things, I'm not sure that people knew that you mm. had like you know. <laughs> You know, like, I mean, people who'd followed your stand-up knew that you had, like, talked about things like marriage equality or, you know, various things throughout your stand-up. But I think it wasn't until the editorials on The Last Leg and a bit more of your social media presence where people started to become aware of, like, you know, you being more outspoken around issues. Is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And so with that, of course, anytime you express an opinion in one way, there's going to be a whole bunch of people who don't share that uh, opinion and maybe don't even think that you have the right to express that opinion. So how was that? And did you, was that a conscious (laughs) decision to start speaking more about, you know, various things or did it just develop naturally? Or as I said, it was always there, but it just wasn't what was needed from you on the things that people knew you best from. Like just, you know, how did that come about? It genuinely came about on an episode of The Last Leg where um, <sighs> Prince William and, and Kate Middleton had been photographed on holidays uh, she was pregnant in a bikini and it had been printed in something like one of the Australian women's magazines, as it was. And the editor of this magazine, there was a big uproar about it. Why are you taking photos of them, you know, secretively when they're on holiday and she's in a bikini? And I remember the editor of the magazine saying, I just think it's public knowledge. I think the public need to know. And we were having a discussion around the table at the last leg of what what's our opinion on this? What? And we were trying to make the jokes and no one was finding the right joke. And eventually someone said, okay, forget about the jokes genuinely how do you feel about this? And I remember kind of being really exasperated about it. And it was probably made worse by the fact it was an Australian media, so I felt like a bit of an ownership and a bit of a a shame. And I remember just saying, oh, I just feel like, can we all just stop being dicks for a second? Can we all just think about what the other person is going through and think maybe, do you know what, maybe we don't need to put a photo of a pregnant woman on the front of a magazine. And it just kind of came out. And I remember the producer going, I think that might be the thing to say on air. And then it was around about, it was possibly even that same episode that Joan Rivers had then made a whole bunch of fat jokes about Adele. Oh, even yeah, though, I remember. Yeah. yeah, and Adele had just won a Grammy, I think. Mm. And and Joan Rivers went straight to the fat jokes. And I, I really, again, I took that personally. I think because I had met Adele very, very, very early on in her career before anyone knew who she was. And she was just this lovely girl that I was doing a radio show with. And to think where she had come from and where she had gotten to, and then Joan Rivers has just reduced it to the way she looks. And it really struck something in me. And I, I, I just, a rant came out basically. And then, and then of course you get the channel going, oh, that worked. Do that again next week. Um, <laughs> that thing that was really organic. If you could just <laughs> manufacture something for next week, which of course is the... The toughest thing about having an opinion also is not being chained up to the uh, the opinion coal mines, right? Like this is often what happens with these people who are in the opinion business. Interesting, is that yeah. They suddenly, then have to have an opinion for hire, and all opinions have to be of equal weight. And sometimes <laughs> you're not as passionate about 
you know, one topic as you are of the next and then it has a false equivalence, right? So there's even a danger in that, that something that was magnificent and organic and like, you know, if people in network that's, you know, the movie had just been like, now we love that bit where you're mad as hell and you're not going to take it anymore. If you could just like start each night with that, that, that's really cutting through, you know? Yeah. When you're asking yourself, what can I rant about this week? uh, That's when you know it's gone a little bit far. But I, I mean, it also comes back to, I guess, what the Dalai Lama said, if you've got a microphone, use it to say something. Mm-hmm. Um, and as much as possible, I'll try and be positive. Like, I, you know, that's that, yes. the stand-up that I always did and do is always trying to be as positive as possible. And, you know, maybe that's how you know when you're being, quote, one of the good guys, when you're actually doing something positive. You know when you're being positive and when you're being negative. And you know when you're bringing someone else down and when you're actually lifting someone else up. So maybe it's that. Maybe it's just, you know lift people up maybe that's the that's the philosophy on life i'm not entirely sure i mean that's that's i mean we don't need to settle on a final answer by the way we're just (laughs) it's the the wrestling with the issue that's the interesting thing and what i like is i mean i think that you demonstrably have lived that like you know there is evidence throughout your work over the years that people can look to and say well if that is your core principle and what you're trying to do here are demonstrable examples of you doing that so that's you at your best what's you at your worst like in that moments where you have to give yourself a reality check and say i don't reckon i'm representing myself in a way that feels like you know legitimate to who i think i am or how i'm behaving like what does that look like or or what are the circumstances that are likely to lead to it while you ponder that i'll give you an example of my own to give you some time to think and which is i i know if i am under time stress I am always at my worst. So mm. like the literal, that example we were talking about before of just putting something in place, I like to always be early to things. I feel no stress in being unnecessarily early, none at all. So there's no downside to that. I'll go and get a coffee or just have a think, have some time to myself. It's bonus time. Nothing wrong with that. I feel incredible stress and will get angry at people and carry it into my day or whatever it is if I am late and rushed and feel on unto- So just I've taken it out because I know it still happens occasionally, yeah, yeah. of course, but at least then I know that I've done everything that I could to prevent this thing that puts me. So that's me at my worst. That's a moment that I can immediately identify where I go, don't be late or if you are late, check in your own head that yeah. you're not taking that into everything else yeah. because you know that this is when you're bad. Like yeah. if you're under this pressure, like – Check yourself, right? What does that look like for you? Or do do you know what that looks like for you? Well, it's funny you say that. That makes me think of uh, a study I read about the, um, I think it was theology students. And it was it was basically about what makes a person behave a certain way. And theology students were, were asked to present a paper to their lecturer on the Good Samaritan, which, you know, is sketchy. But for me, it's like someone by the side of the road that needs help and you know, someone helps them out. Does it end up turning out to be Jesus? I might have, I might be turning that into something that it's not, but it's basically about helping out those in need. And so they were asked, to, this whole thing was set up where they were asked to present this paper to their lecturer. And then they were told, now you have a lecture across campus uh, in an hour. Um, so go over to that lecture. And on the way, someone was placed by the side of the path in a state of slight distress that needed help. And of course, everyone who had just presented a paper on the Good Samaritan, stopped and helped the person by the side of the path. But then when the experiment was altered and they were told, 
you've got a you've got a lecture on the other side of campus. It's starting in five minutes. You have to be there right now. Mm-hmm. The majority of people walked past the person in distress, yes. even though they had just presented a paper about the Good Samaritan. Right. So the point there being, you know, time stress does do that to everyone. Um, it also That's also then made me think, I'm going off on tangents, but it's made me think of another study I read, which I really, really wanted to turn into a stand-up show and I didn't know how. So let me try and remember how this worked. People were brought into a study and they were they were given three bowls of chili to put in front of a, a subject in a room and the, the subject in the room couldn't see them. And they were told, this is the massively hot one, this is the mild one, and this is the, you know, the not even anything one. Which one do you want them to taste first? And they would, of course, everyone would say, we'll give them the mild one to taste first, right? Um, because everyone's nice. You're not going to just go give them the hottest chili, right? Then they altered the experiment. On the way in to the room, uh, the person who was about to choose which chili was bumped into quite roughly by an asshole on their phone in the hallway. <laughs> right? Then they got into the room. The asshole yes. in the hallway was the one they were giving the chili to. <laughs> so, of course, most people went, fuck them, give them the hot chili. What altered that, though, is if... Okay, on the way in, they were bumped into by an asshole in the hallway, mm-hmm. right? They then sit down. That same asshole is in the other room. If if the, the person conducting the examination, before they sat down, said, would you like a glass of water? Then the person sat, had a glass of water, and then they said, what chili do you want to give to the other person? They were less likely to give them the really, really hot chili, even though that was still the same asshole. It was the act of kindness to them on the way in mm-hmm. that made gave them... Yeah. An oxytocin boost, which is the happy chemical, which then made them feel more sympathetic to the other person. So that whole idea of if you're nice to someone, it actually changes the way they react to everybody else. Yes. Has been scientifically proven. And that you can be like addressing, like you can be putting out some fire you're not even aware of with your kindness. Absolutely. Like, you know, I mean, it's funny, like today... It happens to be I did uh, like two of these today. You're, I Jimmy Pardo, the American comedian. Oh yeah, yeah. And he could uh, brilliant, and I love him very much. And he could, but he could only do seven o'clock in the morning, you know, Australian <laughs> right. time. And so I got up early and had a chat to him, and I was just saying some things to him about you know blah blah. And it's funny at the end when we finished and we got off air, he was just like, I actually, you know, man, I just needed this chat today. Like sometimes, right. like I didn't arrange it because I thought he needed the chat. I arranged it for my own selfish purposes for my podcast, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, but you forget sometimes that you're, I mean, of course, you know that your actions have ramifications on other people. But I think sometimes we only ever consider that as a negative statement. You know, yes. like remember that your actions affect others and it's almost framed in that idea of that like don't negatively affect others. But the thing that we speak less about is how much power you have to positively affect others. <laughs> Absolutely, with the tiniest, tiniest, yeah. tiniest of things. Yes, that's interesting. Okay, so your question of when I've been at, an, mm. an example of when I've been at my worst. Yeah. And I'm going to use this in a, in a professional context, because I mean, God, every day I'm at my worst with the kids or, you know, around the house or with the dog or whatever. But this one in particular stood out for me because, so it was Edinburgh Fringe Festival 
and I had been nominated for the Perrier Award, which is the big award, you know, at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And as such, they then had like a Perrier Highlights show where every, everyone who was nominated turned up and did 15 minutes or something like that. But it was the year that Nestle uh, had been found out for kind of pushing, you know, um, baby formula or something, wasn't yes, it? Yes, baby formula. Telling telling mothers in Africa that yeah. baby formula was healthier than breastfeeding. Yeah. So it was a massive, massive thing. And of course, Nestle were a parent company of Perrier. So I turned up. You know, my thinking was I've I've been you know nominated for all, an award. You didn't come up with the name of the award. <laughs> <laughs> or the idea of lying about none baby formula. Anyway. Absolutely. You were involved in none of it. You were an innocent victim of like the corporate's greed, right? <laughs> yeah. So I remember turning up to do yeah. that gig that night with my agent, um, Carolyn Lee Flea, and her husband, Eddie Bannon, an Irish comedian. The three of us kind of walked into the assembly rooms in Edinburgh together. And there were protesters out the front and there were, you know, and there was someone like shoving a placard in my face, basically, you know, calling me a traitor and, and how dare you and your baby killer and all that kind of stuff. And I, on the way in, I just turned and I looked at the guy and said, oh, listen, man, I've just been nominated for an award. I've got nothing to do with what goes on over there. I don't agree with it, but I'm just going to get up on stage and do my bit and go home. And I thought, well done. And then he kept pushing it. And I remember snapping and going, and do you know what? I'm going to fucking talk about you on stage so everyone knows what a prick you uh, are. Yeah. And as we walked in, I remember Eddie Bannon going, that's not you. Yeah. And do you know what my first thought was? Oh, no, that's the real me. Yeah. That is the right. first time that the real me has popped out in a, in a professional <laughs> capacity because that's, that's what happens when the act drops and you just go, fuck you, you piece of shit. Um, which happens. So then how do you move from that? Like, I mean, because if that's a natural, and by the way, I think there'd be some people who are relieved to hear that you say that because like, I think we're all human and we all have those moments of like, I mean, wanting a disproportionate response. (laughs) (laughs) You have slightly slighted me (laughs) and now you must pay for now and forever. (laughs) You know, like I... I get it. It's a natural human response. Like, you know, that person got my park, so therefore their whole, whole family must die in a fire. Like, <laughs> like, it's human and that's okay. But then how do you move through that moment of, like, were you immediately back to you? Or when you say that is the real me, is that then a process that you have to in your real life go from that thought? Or how do you not get trapped in those thoughts, because if it's natural and human to have them fleetingly, like let's say it's natural and human to when someone cuts you off in, like I think a good example, it's like your water example, is someone cuts me off in traffic, me immediately getting furious. Yeah. That same person give me a little wave, me immediately going, oh, that's fine. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> We're cool again. We all make mistakes, man. I get it. <laughs> It's like, I mean, in much the same way, my yeah. Twitter feed over the last few days, I've been, I've been putting out some pro yes vote campaign stuff for the oh, referendum. So tell me about this. Oh my goodness, the, just some of the worst dregs of humanity. 
Um, and, and I say that, I don't mean people who disagree with me. If you disagree with me, that's absolutely fine. But if you take it to hate-based and racism and, you know, even then criticising me for having a prosthetic leg or, you know, making jokes about that, you're like, dude, this is... And I, I tried to handpick the ones that I thought I could make something funny out of and try to keep it funny. But the amount of times I felt like just picking up my phone and just literally writing back, fuck you, go fuck yourself. Why don't you, and, and like really going to town on people and stop myself, I guess, I don't know, I guess because, to be honest, I, I did get an email from a friend of mine, um, a comedian in, in Ireland called Brendan Dempsey, who said, look, I, I read this article recently about how the point of the those tweets is to make you angry. So yes. once you respond with anger, they've actually, that's actually what yes. they wanted to happen. So just let it go. Um do you know what? Probably the best lesson in all of that is I still do it now, but more so when we started making the last leg, I would go home and cause I'm off the booze. So I would run myself a bath and I would just soak in the bath. Cause you know, you need the adrenaline to wind down and I would soak in the bath and I would go through my Twitter mentions, <laughs> see what people thought of the show. And I remember being two thirty in the morning and someone had written, you know, something really negative about the show yeah. and about me. And I remember writing back going, dude, how sad is your life? It's 2.30 a.m. and you're tweeting the guy you saw on TV to tell him his shit. And that person wrote back, well, how sad is your life? Mm -hmm. You've just been on TV. It's 2.30 in the morning and you're tweeting me. Mm. And I was like, I mean, oh, that is an yeah. excellent point. Well argued, sir. <laughs> yeah. That is, what is wrong with me? You're an old celebrity in your bath going through your Twitter mentions, responding to them. Like, it's a real wake-up call. <laughs> and picking out the one negative. Go, going through, yes, yes, that they liked me, they liked me, they liked me. You didn't. Well, I'm going to respond to you. What is so? So I, like as everyone who listens to this podcast knows, hello to new listeners. I'm sure there will be some new people who've just popped in to have a listen to this one. So welcome. You're hearing this for the first time and I've taken the self-control to last at least 90 minutes into the podcast without bringing it up. I am not on social media anymore. I've not been on social media for about a year now and I find it hard. The hardest thing about it is just not being an evangelist for everything about it and how it improves your life. But wow. um, part of what I had to rationalize was because everyone talks to you about negativity bias, right? Which is that it doesn't matter if there was 300 like, you know, really positive things about the show that you were reading there in your bath, like yeah. Bruce Wayne alone in your manner <laughs> going through you. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that one negative that sticks mm -hmm. in your mind. Like, but the truth is that you went there looking for the positive. That's, mm -hmm. that, that's the thing you really have to rationalize because otherwise you wouldn't be looking at all, right? You're not going there looking for the negative. You went there originally looking for the positive. You, and, and, but then when you found the negative, that's all you can think about. <laughs> and you did that to yourself. Like, <laughs> right? Yep. If you hadn't turned on your phone, you just would have had a nice bath and gone to bed. <laughs> <laughs> and part of me sees it as like, sometimes I can, I can oh. objectify it. I can look at it and go, mm. okay, from an objective point of view, how do people respond to the show? 
you know, were there negatives? Were there things yeah. that people didn't like? Are there things I could have done better? Mm. Part of me. And then every now and then you get like, yeah. it might That's be a person. That's how you justify it. But also <laughs> one, one person's opinion or whatever it is, is like, it's out of context. You don't know that person. They're there on the internet. Mm. Like, I think all of it is disproportionate feedback because also here's what I've realized about being in the real world. You know how online you just think that p part of the cost of business is that every second day someone's going to, oh, or if you want to express your point about the voice to a whole bunch of people, that there's going to be this dialogue you need to see that's calling you ableist slurs or that is racist or any of these sort of things. What I've realized is in the real world. <laughs> I, know, I know where you're heading. Yeah. <laughs> like it is actually still really possible to have civil conversations with people <laughs> yeah. and to share opinions. And yeah. no one ever comes up to me and just randomly <laughs> calls me a fuckhead. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's just really pleasant. You can have a bath in peace. <laughs> and the great thing about the internet is you can, and this is what your friend was saying, is you can actually just post without feedback. Yeah. I'm not saying, because I still have internet channels that are run by somebody else. And if I feel passionate about the voice or some comedian I saw or whatever, I can make a little video and I can get them to post it to my socials. But what I do not have is the logins to any of those socials. So it yeah. exists purely as it is, as my thing that I put out there. And then I don't need to know if it was good, bad, or indifferent to other people. I thought it, I expressed it, I moved on. It's liberating. And a, a, a big wake-up call for me was reading a statistic that said something along the lines of 6% of the general public classify themselves as regular Twitter users. Mm -hmm. Six percent. That yeah. is tiny. tiny. When you realise... You know, and so of often, that, there is only a very small amount of super users. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So when you've got someone with a with a with a fake name as their as their Twitter handle, uh, with a sexual double entendre in there, and their profile pic is a cartoon character, and they're being massively abusive, like that's not a real person. No. That, and and it's so hard. I think because it's on your phone, because it's on the thing you carry with you all the mm. time, on the the thing that people send you personal messages on, you conflate the two. Mm. You you go. You give as much weight to a text from your mate as you do from a tweet from some person that you've never met, because it's on your it's on your personal device. So, I think, I think remembering, you know, to answer your question of how do you deal with that? How do you deal with someone getting up in your face and shouting at you? I think you know remembering that life is ridiculous. So try to be one of the good guys. Um, okay, I'll leave. Okay, this is the perfect example. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> and I, I were you about to say I'll leave you with this? I'll leave, well, <laughs> it was like you were going to wrap up. Anyway, I'll is, leave you with this. This is uh, possibly <laughs> this could be the last possible anecdote that I could have that could inform my philosophy on life. After this, I'm spent. I'm done. I've got. I've still got like five standard questions I ask at the end, so you've got to answer <laughs> cool. those. So, I was in. Okay, I was in. Um, and look, honestly, if you go back through my stand-up shows, almost the point of every one of my stand-up shows is a message to me to stop, you know, to just chill yeah. out a bit and be be more positive as a person mm -hmm. in, in everyday life. I was in Malta. We were filming Who Do You Think You Are? Um, you know, the, the, the TV show about your ancestry. And it was a tricky, especially in Malta. Imagine if it turns out you were me. That was the reveal <laughs> of your episode. 
<laughs> but it turns out we've done all the research and you actually are Will Anderson. I'm sorry. <laughs> this, which means right now this is like Fight Club and one of yeah. us isn't real. Oh, man. Well, I imagine that I'm imagining you because you're doing better. Although, actually, you could be imagining me because of your low self-esteem. Right. You, you are my Tyler Durden. <laughs> <laughs> you are everything I wish I could be. Yeah, funny. Um, <laughs> so anyway, we're in Malta. Yes. Tricky, tricky shoot without going into like mm. so many. To, Malta's a tricky place to film because there's more population per square meter, I think, than any other country in the world. So you're filming outside. Like there was literally one day we started filming at eight in the morning on the on army barracks, which happened to be the time that they use high pressure hoses to clean the cannons, right. which meant we had to wait. And then they finished, and then there are fireworks. There's fireworks on a Saturday from nine in the morning in Malta. Why wouldn't there be? So you're stopping filming because of Best that. Best time of the day for fireworks, <laughs> nine o'clock in the morning. We then go to a church <laughs> where my ancestors had a sculpture in the back of the church, literally started filming, a brass band started rehearsing across the road in an apartment, mm. went to the back of the church at the moment where they rolled out my... Um, <clears throat> Uh, family tree, which went back to 1493. The bells of the church started ringing because it was midday. So we waited and waited and waited and then eventually said to the priest, how long did the church, the bells go for? And he went, oh, 45 minutes. <laughs> it was one of those. Mm. We got to the airport to leave Malta. There's probably six crew. There's about 15 different pieces of luggage. There's, you know, cameras and whatever else. And the guy at the business class desk for Malta Airways called us forward. We were in economy but the guy at the business class desk had no one. He said, come forward. And we came forward and he was getting visibly stressed out, which was visibly stressing me out. Um, I think one reason I do get stressed out is I do take on other people's energy. I, I need to find a way to not, if you're stressing, not take that on. And I was getting wound up and my, I could feel myself. And I was really at that point where I was about to go, mate, for fuck's sake, just calm the shit down. And like, I really wanted to have a rant. And the sound guy whose name... Might have been Laurie. I can't remember, but he was certainly from regional Australia. He was a country bloke. <laughs> just was the loveliest thing I've ever, like in the midst of all this stress and kind of, oh, just walked up to the guy and went, g'day, mate. Listen, we were in the economy line and we were quite happy to stay in the economy line. But I mean, we came here because you called us forward. Now I know this is a stress. If this is too much for you, we're more than happy to go back to the economy line. But if you want to deal with it, then, you know, Let's deal with it. And you could see the whole, the guy's whole demeanor just calmed, his shoulders dropped, and he went, okay, let's deal with this. And I've always thought, man, I wish I could be more like that guy mm -hmm. in, in moments of stress. And I don't know how he did it. It was like, it was like, you know, Paul Hogan putting the, putting the, the bull to sleep in the middle of the, you know, it was that, it was, it was almost like, like hypnosis, but as much as, you know, life is ridiculous, why not be one of the good guys? That's what I, I would love to be. But, man, that's what I'm aiming at. I'm aiming at being the guy that can just walk up and go, G'day. I know things are tricky. Let's just work this out together. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, and I'm not that person. I know I'm not that person. Uh, Adam Hills, what happens uh, when we die, do you believe? What do you think happens when we die? Funnily enough, the prayer that the, the, the Buddhist prayer that uh, I mentioned to you earlier that I say a lot is from the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, and, and is a prayer for death. And 
it basically asks the great power to forgive you for all of your negative thoughts and blockages and obscurations and, you know, may I know myself forgiven for any negative thoughts I've had and, and it basically ends up, what's the last line? In the triumph of my death, may I be able to benefit all other beings, living or dead. Uh, I think, I think you rejoin the universe. I don't know. If all, all energy is matter, right? Or, or all matter is energy. And so you can't destroy energy. When a person dies, you can't, that energy goes somewhere. So where does it go? It just goes back into the universe. So I'd like to think that we just rejoin the universe. Our little atoms or our little beings just rejoin the great everything. So and if that is if that is the case, and that's mm. a nice way to look at it, and I think there's like at least that's kind of like a good sp- spiritual meets scientific like take on things, right? Like mm. which is a lovely Venn diagram for people. So mm. if that is true, we were something beforehand, we were something after, and we'll just go back to that. <clears throat> it's this in-between bit that I'm most curious about, <laughs> the bit in between when we were nothing and when we go to be nothing again. Human beings, the universe, massive, getting bigger, uh, our understanding of it growing all the time. Uh, we are just a tiny speck in the corner in a bunch of unlikely circumstances that has somehow created this world and this planet and this civilization and this, like, you know, where do you feel we're at? Like, when you look at, you know, if we are the only version of us, you know, there mm. might be other life as you want to define it in the universe. There probably is, you know. Yeah. yeah but but we're the only us probably, the ones that look like us, talk like us at our stage of our evolution because even a human from the year 2023 would appear like an alien to a human from the year. Mm. Like we don't even have to go back that far, right? Yeah. You know, so – the internet's only been around for half of our lifetimes and it changed everything, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. so you don't have to go back that far to feel alien. Like what do you think life is? Like what what is it, do you think? Like, you know, I understand, you know, what your role is in it. You know, you've talked about that. You know, it's ridiculous. But why did it become this? I know that's a big question, but do you ever think about that? Do you ever think about how just ridiculous and curious the whole idea of being a human and and life is yeah so i i kind of i i probably oscillate between the idea of thinking that we just keep repeating the same shit over and over and over and over and you go back in history and realize oh my god we've done all this before we're just we're just on this endless cycle of repeating ourselves but then i also think you know looking at the facts looking at the statistics there's an amazing book called factfulness which points out that now is right now as a human being generally, by and large, is the best time to have ever been alive as far as life expectancy, life quality, uh, you know, lack of chances of being shot on the street or killed on the street or killed in a war. Like, we're probably at the best point right now that we've ever been, which makes me think, well, you know, sometimes I feel like that about life. Like, right now I'm probably at the best point I've been as far as what I've learned and what I've accumulated and I'm probably going to get a little bit better. So... You know, maybe the, maybe human humanity is kind of mirroring what a general life of a, of a person is, which is we're we're learning, we're getting better, we're doing our best, um, and overall, what's the point? I'm not sure. Maybe the I don't know. 
I honestly don't know what the point is. The point is what's to get the, better. What's the worst or uh, best? I prefer worst, but best is fine as an answer because some people don't remember worst. But what's the worst or best piece of advice that you've ever received? <sighs> Best. I mean, yeah. I mean, best is fine, by the way, as an answer, because people tend to remember best, but I just love yeah. worse because I love bad advice. I love somebody who's got a certain, <laughs> I love someone who's got a certain opinion about something that is absolutely incorrect. <laughs> okay. Only because it's top of mind. Yeah. <laughs> I will give you the worst, the worst tip or little bit of advice yeah. I got. If I got not, and I thought about this the other day, so maybe it's why it's top of mind. But it was another comedian who I hadn't seen for ages, and then he turned up uh, to a gig, and I was, oh, I haven't seen you for ages, and he went, oh yeah, I've been off, I've been, I've, I've, you know, I had a tough time off at work, I've had time off work. And I was, oh, what happened? He said oh, I was using a high pressure hose, and I wasn't wearing the right shoes, and uh, I actually like lost two of my toes because I because the the high pressure hose like just destroyed two of my toes, and I had to have them amputated. I was like, oh, mate, I'm really sorry. No, it's great, mate. It's great. I got compo. I've, I've, I've been at home for six months. I've been paid for doing nothing. It's amazing. Mate, if ever, if ever you want a bit of easy cash, you should give it a go. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I've only got five to play yeah. with, mate. Yeah. Like, of all the people to say that to... I think that's possible. I mean, or technically, you've proved that you only like. I mean, you look at how well you've done with five. <laughs> Maybe you only need three. You know. <laughs> so, as far as advice goes, you know, yeah. you know, blow two of your toes off with yeah. a high pressure hose. Not a great tip. <laughs> like that is that definitely is bad advice. Definitely worst advice I've ever received. Uh, I used to on my desk have a little reminder to myself that said, "What would you attempt to do?" if you knew you could not fail. And basically the reminder to me was meant to be don't like let the expectations oh. of whether or do well or not get in the way. Just like do what you want to do. Like, you know, attempt what you want to attempt. Don't, don't measure something by its level of success. But I like to frame the question this way, which is what would you attempt to do if success was guaranteed? So you don't have to worry about whether it works or not. What would you attempt to do? That's a fascinating question. I think, you know, as someone who's kind of tried to build a life on on doing all the things that I want to do and not letting anything hold me back, you know, and, and there's a there, there's a theory to be had that maybe being born w without a right foot teaches you to have a crack at everything and don't let anything hold you back. Um <laughs> I've got two and I've just realised how completely at odds they are with each other, how at each end of the spectrum of good. humanity. Well, tell, me, tell me both then, so that's good. One is pursue Reiki as far as I could take it, uh -huh. and, which is interesting because there's no, there's actually no, there's no success or failure with that. It would mm -hmm. just be, let's see how far we could take this, mm -hmm. you know, as, as a as a force of energy in the, yeah. in the world, um, you know, whether that be as a Reiki practitioner or just as, as living in the energy as much as I possibly could. And <laughs> the, other, the other side is surfing. I'd love mm -hmm. to try surfing. Oh, no. Well, they're both about energy and connection. 
They are, a, the, the, like, I mean, yeah. surfing is very much about connection. Like that's, you've got to be, I mean, I use the analogy and I'm not the only one who's done this by the way, but like we stand up in audiences all the time, which is it's surfing, you know, like yeah. the best surfer in the world can't surf a pool. Like, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you can get someone to jump in and make a few waves. You can do something about it, but like, you know, it, the best nights, those moments when you're in that zone that you talked about before are when you and the audience are, when you say to a stand-up, how was your gig tonight? They are actually never answering the question how they performed at the show, right? Because yeah. you're never saying, oh, I nailed all my accents tonight and my punchlines were spot on timing-wise. What you're talking about whenever you answer that question is, it was a good one tonight. What you're really saying, even if you don't say it in this words, is I felt connected to the audience. Yeah. My connection yeah. was really good with the audience, right? And that's what's... And it, Reiki is about energy and connection and surfing 100% is about connection. That's exactly what it is. It's being connected with the planet. You literally are. That's yeah. why I love being in the water. Like it's rare that when you're on land, you get to be in the planet. You yeah. are on the planet. <laughs> but the minute you're in the ocean, you're in the planet. You are literally part of this giant thing that we live on. You're actually also inside it. Like, I mean, anyway, like I mean, and that's and to take that further, whether it be Taoism or Buddhism or whatever or meditation, the idea of, you know, there is an idea of of anger and emotions being like the ocean and being like waves, and yeah, yeah, let let the anger come up, let the anger come up, and then just let it go again. Like you know, thinking back to that guy out the side of the assembly rooms getting up in my face, you know, just ride the wave. You know, you don't you don't see a wave coming towards you and go, oh my god, there's a wave coming, I'm going to drown. You go, no, 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 I'm just going to float up with it and then float down the other side. And and that, you know, let all the other bullshit lie underneath you. Sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, but just just know that you can float your way through it all. All right, this has been so good, Adam. So obviously the documentary, let's plug that, but let's just plug, let's plug whatever you want to plug. Let's <laughs> okay. plug stuff. Um, so the documentary is called. Uh, grow another foot. Um, the reason it was called that was because I was told when you play for your, because th there was a moment in it where I had to choose whether to represent Australia or, or make myself available for Australia or England because I qualified for both. And <clears throat> Sean Briscoe, who's the coach of the England team, said to me, look, when you pull on your country's shirt, you should grow another foot. And I said, well, if I could do that, I wouldn't be playing disability rugby <laughs> league in the first place. <laughs> um, so it's called Grow Another Foot. It's on Channel 10, I think, on the uh, 20th of September, and then it's on Paramount Plus after that. Um, aside from that, I'm writing a third kids book. I've got kids books out called Rockstar Detectives. Uh, there's Rockstar Detectives and there's Rockstar Detectives Murder at the Movies. I'm just working on the third one at the moment. And the big thing for me at the moment is this disability tennis that seems to be on the rise, if you go to the, the look up para standing tennis, P-A-R-A standing tennis, um, it's tennis for people with cerebral palsy, short statured limb deficiencies. Um, my plan is to get into shape and play. It looks like there's going to be a tournament in Melbourne, the first ever Australian tournament in January next year. There could even be a world championships. The International Tennis Federation have just jumped on board. Um, so what I want to plug and what, again, I've learned through doing all of this amazing disability sport is the the joy that I get out of it is the joy that other people get out of it as well. So I want as many people as possible to know about it because I know there's loads of people that play tennis who are missing legs or arms or have cerebral palsy or whatever, but that don't know where to go with it. Uh, there's now a website, parastandingtennis.com. 
Well, I know you get joy out of all this and I know that a lot of people get joy out of the work that you do because often they congratulate me for it. So <laughs> I have personal experience of it. Uh, one final question, Adam. Thank you so much for doing the show. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, if I had a time machine, here's what I would offer you. I would offer you a trip, uh, either forward or backward in time. I don't mind. Uh no rules of time travel explained, so mm-hmm. you don't have mm-hmm. to – you're not going to affect anything. You're not going to, you know, bugger anything up with your actions if you go back in time, but you can also go forward in time. And you have no social responsibilities. So, like, this technology has been developed and is available. It is purely for your own to use in whatever way you want to. You don't need to go to yourself. You can just go to some event in history or in the future that you would like to visit. You know, there's, it's open to all possibilities. Don't feel the pressure to go back and kill Hitler or whatever mm. because we'll, we'll send someone more appropriately. Unless, <laughs> and I always point this out. Yep. Unless your yep. passion project is genuinely to kill Hitler. Like I don't want to re- say to people that you can't kill Hitler if that's like, no, the one thing I've always actually really been passionate about is killing Hitler. <laughs> then therefore that is still fine. You're allowed to do it, but it's not your responsibility. No, I like the, I like I like taking the taking the humanitarian taking the pressure out of this, doing it for purely selfish reasons is takes away the oh, I would solve world hunger or I'd go back to or whatever. I love that. Um, although you did just remind me, I'm sure Emo Phillips sent a tweet, put out a tweet that was like, you know, um, a conversation between two people and the the first person says, so your mission is to, we are sending you back to the year Hitler was born. Your job is to make sure he doesn't come to power. Your job, do not forget this, do not get distracted. Your job is to kill Hitler. And then (laughs) Henry Ford answers, got it. (laughs) um so taking killing hitler out of the equation genuinely the moment i would love to go back to is the moment (laughs) it's the perfect joke isn't it it's a really great joke i mean what a great craftsperson of jokes emo phillips is just in general by the way i I, I assume you've gigged with Emo over the, Have you run into Emo oh, on your travels? So many. T- and he's one yeah, of those people same. that- Lovely. You, I remember so re- nice. retweeting that joke and yeah. then getting a DM from oh, him yeah, saying no, thank you for- messages you to say thank oh. you. Yeah, I know. That's, that's actually, I do miss something from social media. Retweeting Emo Phillips and getting a lovely message from Emo Phillips. You're right. Um, but all that aside, a moment in history- and this is such an obscure little thing that I'd love to go back. So I'm a big Marx Brothers fan. I love uh, the Marx Brothers. I have uh, a contract. Carl, Sorry? No, Carl Marx. And <laughs> 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 his brother, Ivan. <laughs> I have, I mean, if you'd, seen, if you'd seen some of the replies I got from the voice I bet. vote, I'm, <laughs> Carl Marx was invoked. Um, yeah. No, I love the Marx Brothers, and I have one of my one of my prized possessions is a, is an artist's contract from 1972 signed by Groucho Marx. Oh, um, great! It's hanging on my wall, and I, I I've always been to the point where I've not seen every Marx Brothers movie because I like knowing that one day I'm going to sit down and watch a new Marx Brothers movie for the first time. Yes, and I don't know when that's going to happen. But there's a couple that I haven't <sighs> seen, and I've been saving them. That's a great idea, saving yourself. A reward for later. Here's the moment I would go to is 
so the Marx Brothers started out, you know, doing a whole bunch of shows as, a, uh, you know, a family, mm. Harpo, Chico, Groucho, um, Zeppo and Gummo, actually, mm. all of them on stage. But there was one famous moment in a, in a town in Texas called Nagadoches where they were doing a show. It wasn't the, your standard Marx Brothers show. It was a standard, you know, vaudeville performance. And uh, I think it was uh, a horse escaped uh, and ran through the main street of the town. Yeah. And half the audience got up and left to see the horse running through the main street of the town. At which point the Marx Brothers, for the first time in their career, started ad-libbing on stage. Uh-huh. So when the audience all came back in, they went totally off script. And w- the line that stands out to me is, Nagadoches is full of roaches. Not the most hilarious line in the world. But in like 1930s, 1940, mm-hmm. might have even been the 20s, someone like creating a moment of chaos on stage. And basically yes. that's where the Marx Brothers personas were born. That that realisation of yes. we can just throw right. the script out, just, you know, Harpo, you get off, st- Harpo just got off stage, ran through the crowd. Groucho was just ad-libbing insults. And it was like a moment of, the, the moment of comedy history. Wow. For spoken word comedy and for the Marx Brothers. So if I could go I anywhere. did not know that. Like, I don't know that story. That's the first time I've ever heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's 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 the moment that they went, oh, wow, we yeah. get much better response when we go off script. Right. In the Let's room. do this more. So in yeah. the room. Exactly. In the room. So that's the moment I'd go back to. Well, that seems very on brand for the whole <laughs> philosophical conversation yeah. that we have had. Adam Hills, thank you so much for doing this. I, it, it's been a, an absolute great pleasure. So thank you for making the effort. I appreciate it. Thank you. And please please put the link up on social so that when people get us confused, I can just point them to this to prove that we are two it's, different come people. Come on, people. This is it. <laughs> this is enough. <laughs> Leave us alone. <laughs> Adam Wills. <laughs>